You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. You know, if you're in human resources and on social media, particularly LinkedIn, you probably recognize the name John Hyman. John Hyman is a labor and employment attorney, as well as shareholder and director at Wickens Herzer Panza, which is a law firm in Avon, Ohio. However, with more than 16,000 followers on LinkedIn, most people outside of Ohio know John as one of the most prolific writers on workplace issues, as he's followed by thousands of HR practitioners. And on his website, the Ohio Employer blog, John produces a lot of content that's both entertaining as well as enlightening. One of the topics he covers as sort of a series is his Worst Employer Awards, And that's where he dissects employment law cases and breaks down the cases in an entertaining way of some of the more egregious and, say, cringeworthy behaviors that land the subject companies in legal hot water. In any case, I've followed John for years on LinkedIn and reached out to him to come on to Labor Relations Radio after seeing a couple of his posts in the last week, one of which was entitled, Why I'm Anti-Union. And the other was about union salting. So here's John Hyman. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, John Hyman, thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. How are you today? I am doing well. Thanks for the invite. It's good to be. It's good to be a guest on Labor Relations Radio. I'm excited. It's uh, yeah. It's I just started this a couple months ago after doing a, a different podcast uh, last year or starting a different podcast, and so this one is easier to get guests on than the other one just by the name of it. So it's, uh, it's, it's fun. And I I love, I love talking about this stuff. So I'm never, never shy to accept an invite to come on and talk about uh, things that I'm passionate about. Well, so, so let's talk about that because um, as I mentioned just a couple seconds ago, I've known your attorney, I've been following you for a long, long time and you do the, um, the worst employer rewards and, and, Cite a bunch of stuff. You're very well read, or I'm sorry, way, the way to put that would be you're read a lot by people on LinkedIn. And so it was interesting because last week, or I think it was last week, you put a post up that, you know, started out with, John, why are you anti union? And I was like, oh, yeah, he practices labor law too. So I do. I've been a, a labor and employment lawyer for. It'll be 25 years uh, this um, August since I passed the bar exam um, and have always been a management side labor and employment lawyer. And my practice has always been, I mean, the scale is always, thumb has always been a, a little heavier, a lot heavier on the employment law side of the scale, the non-collectively bargained side of the scale. Um, but I've always practiced labor law. I started my career at a labor boutique um, and so I've always practiced in the labor law world. Um, and as we were talking about before we started recording, with the way unions have come roaring back, uh, it's gotten it's it's gotten busier, and I think it's going to get a lot uh, a lot more busy um, as the as the months flip by on the calendar. 
So um, one of the things that I've been trying to wrap my head around a little bit is I think we started seeing this building right before the pandemic. Um, and then everything got shut down and not everything, you know, essential workers were working, but it's really exploded since the reopening of the economy, so to speak. Have you noticed that at all? I have. I think the the pandemic really played into the hands or the issues that the pandemic brought to the forefront in the American workplace really play into the hands of the issues that union organizers use to get a foot into workplaces and, and seem to gain traction with employees. So things like safety and communication and other issues that the pandemic really shoved to the forefront that, you know, is this, is this a safe place for employees to come to work? And it's not their traditional, you know, leave work with the same number of fingers that you came to work with kind of safety. It's a, it's a, it's a new kind of safety, but it's still the same type of safety issues that unions talk about. And the pandemic was uh, very, very, um, you know, very, very safety focused, the, obviously the kind of conversations we were having. So that played really heavily into, uh, you know, into issues that uh, help unions, as did things like, you know, pay issues that surrounded the pandemic and, uh, you know, bringing people into the workplace or back into the workplace, all these issues that really kind of play right into unions' hands. And you couple that, I think, with the and I, I always hate to rely back on fall back on gener, generational generalizations, but the activism that we see in Gen Z, I think that plays right into unions' hands as well. So it's kind of a whole bunch of stuff all coming together at once has kind of created a perfect storm for labor unions. Yeah, the um, we've we had labor activity during the pandemic with some clients that you know, on the surface, we're doing everything right. You know, safe workplace, if somebody um, caught COVID or, uh, you know, even secondhand COVID, so to speak, you know, I came to work, I was at a party over the weekend and and so-and-so said they had COVID. Some employers like shut down their facilities, cleaned it out, did everything right and still had labor activity. And then coming out of it, we've seen a lot of employers because there's a, a shortage, and this was starting before the pandemic, there's a, been a shortage of, of workers out there. So the labor market was getting tight. And so employers are starting to bring employees in at higher rates of pay and creating compression issues with their with their wages. So that's kind of, you know, we've seen some of that, but, but now it's just kind of exploded. And I think a lot of it, as you're mentioning, is the Gen Z, it's the social media, you know, if you're following the Starbucks campaign with the TikTok and and Twitter and you know it's all over the place, and, and then even, Amazon, and and even for workplaces, I mean Amazon reputationally is not the best employer to work with or work to work for as an employee. They have their own separate kind of employee relations issues. So I can understand, despite how hard they fought, why why a union could gain traction among Amazon's employees. But Starbucks, it is traditionally. Um, a good corporate citizen and is always thought of as a kind of a good place to work. And I'm going to overgeneralize, but I think what we're seeing particularly with Gen Z is even for employers that are the quote good employers to work for, uh, that are not going to make my, uh, as you mentioned, not going to make my, my annual list of America's worst employers. 
they feel that they have the right to have a seat at the table, to have conversations with their employer and have a say-so in, you know, wages, hours, and working conditions. Um, and it is a, it is kind of a paradigm shift in how workers are thinking about how their wages, hours, and working conditions are set. They're no longer accepting the, they're no longer accepting the justification that it's, you know, I'm the employer, you're the employee, uh, we are, you know, I'm setting these things and you'll, you know, you work for your paycheck and, and they are Gen Z uh, for better, I would say for worse, has a much more, I think, socialist than capitalist view of the employer employee relationship. And I think we're seeing that definitely spill over into this, this current wave of, of unionization that we're seeing. Uh, that yeah, I think that's a definite because um, and I've been citing this study that was done back, and I can't recall if it was Pew or Gallup, but um, it was like sixty-one percent of the Gen Z workers. This is twenty nineteen, uh, aged eighteen to twenty-four. Sixty-one percent favor socialism over capitalism, and which to me is kind of a failure in our our schooling, so to speak, in terms of educating people about what's what. Um, and that's played a lot in terms of the Starbucks and the uh, Amazon campaigns with regard to, you know, the DSA, Communist Party USA. Uh, they did phone, CPUSA did phone banking for the Amazon labor union, you know, right before the election too. So that's out there. I just, it's not getting a lot of traction in the press. Let me, um, let me come back to one of your posts. Um, and that was the one, it was a few days ago. And you know, start out, John, why are you anti-union? And you went through a litany of things. And I think, um, and it may have been a different post where you'd stated anti-union, anti I'm paraphrasing, anti-union doesn't mean anti-employee or anti-worker, yeah, right? Yeah, and let, let, let me give the background and then we can kind of talk about some of the things or some of my reasons for why I'm, why I'm anti-union. Um, and I should say, like, I grew up in a union household, both my parents... Uh, Public sector unions. Both my parents were, you know, both my parents were school teachers. I was, I don't know, six or seven years old. The Philadelphia public schools went on strike. I walked the picket line with my parents. Like I grew. That's my background. That's how I grew up. Um, but in my years of working with employers, I formed a very different viewpoint of what I think is in employers and employees' best interest in terms of labor unions. And I think most times, and there are instances where I think uh, a, a union might be uh, might be the, a good, uh, you know, because of the nature of the employer, it might be the best solution for a group of employees. I think in most cases it's not. Now we can talk about, we can talk about why, but I was, in addition to being a labor and employment lawyer, I also chair the craft beer practice group here at my firm, Wiccan Serzer Panza, here in, um, in, in Avon, which is a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. And I was invited to speak on a panel um, at an online uh, craft beer professionals conference, and the panel was on fair compensation. And the event organizer advertised the panel, and people lost their minds because I was speaking on the panel and they, they did so because I had taken a comment from the group in which somebody a number of weeks ago 
um, in a thread about something, some issue going on in a brewery, had posted an email address for the IWW saying, if you have, if you have issues in your brewery, you want to talk to someone about unionizing, here's who to contact or how to contact the IWW to talk to someone about maybe organizing your workplace. And I wrote a post uh, uh, on my blog and, and also on LinkedIn where I said, if you're a craft brewery, like you need to pay attention to this because your, your industry, our industry is, is being actively targeted by labor unions for organizing. And uh, the, the, the pushback I got in the group when I was announced as a speaker on this fair compensation panel is, you know, you're a corporate chill, you are anti-union, you don't believe in collective bargaining, you're obviously anti-worker, you can't have an opinion on, you should not have an opinion on what it is or how you can fairly compensate your employees as a business because you take the side of the employer, you're anti-worker. And so I, I did write one post on, uh, you know, anti-union does not mean anti-worker. I have a I have a definite viewpoint and philosophy I've developed over my career that, and I think most uh, uh, people that work in the, in the, labor space would agree the best way to keep a union out is to be a, is to treat your employees well, respect open communication, pay them fairly. I mean, that's the best union avoidance campaign possible. And so I'm, I'm not anti-worker at all. I'm actually a pro-worker. I think employers should be treating their employees well. Um, but then the follow-up post to that was, you know, why, why if, if I'm pro-worker, why I'm anti-union? And then laying out my philosophy as to why I don't think unions make sense uh, in in most cases, yeah. One of the uh, one of the comments that you had or made is that uh, unions promote and protect the lowest common denominator, and I I don't know that a lot of people understand that, and some who've been around unions do, but um, that goes to you know the collective bargaining agreement, the union having to be representative of everybody, and the people that typically want, and I think I commented on your posts, um, you know, I, we had a joke when I was in the union 35 years ago that we represent the sick, lame, and lazy. And it's really because unions are representative of everybody. And the people that actually need a union on the job are the ones that typically get in trouble. Yeah, that's right. Those are the ones that reach out to the union. Those are the ones that, those are the employees that file the grievances that the employers challenge because they, don't want bad or poor or marginal employees working for them. And those are the ones that go to arbitrations and arbitrators uh, for better or for worse. I think some, a lot of the times for worse dispense their kind of own brand of industrial justice as they, as each arbitrator has their own kind of interpretation of selective bargaining agreements and what is or is not just cause. And I've seen, and I've seen weird results over the years where, you know, an employee, forget about at-will employment, an employee who has no business remaining employed, um, you know, an arbitrator, you know, repeated misconduct, egregious, sometimes intentional misconduct, and the arbitrator puts them back, puts them back to work. And so it's not just promoting and protecting the lowest common denominator as from the employer standpoint, but from the employee standpoint, like, is that how you want your union dues spent protecting, you know, the guy next to you that might, might put you in danger because he, 
he or she can't do their job correctly and might pose a safety risk to you? Is that, you know, is that how you want your union dues spent or, you know, protecting the employee that causes you to work harder because they're not carrying the weight? Um, it's something that employees, I think, have to consider when they're deciding whether to, you know, sign that card or, or you know, check the, you know, check the yes box on their, on their ballot. Yeah, there's, we used to have it, uh, and again, it's, we used to say this somewhat sarcastically, but it was like the 90-10 rule. You're gonna, if you collect dues from 100 workers, the bottom 10% are the ones that are going to be utilizing all those dues and grievances and arbitrations if it goes that far, et cetera. But on the flip side to that, if management does its job correctly, even in a unionized environment, and they do the, the due diligence, they have their past practices, they do their write-ups, you know, progressive discipline. And I'm speaking as a former union rep, there's not a lot a union can do if management's doing its job right. That's correct. The problem is, and I can tell you that um, most employers, collectively bargained and not collectively bargained, um, do a pretty lousy job of documenting issues. Right. So, you know, that's my, that's my worst nightmare is when, the employer, you know, when, when the summons comes in the mail and then I ask for the personnel file and it's, you know, you, you know the listeners can't see what it, but it's, you know, it's paper thin, right? Right, right. And so when it's like, I, you know, you're telling me this employee had a dozen years of performance problems and I don't see a single piece of paper that says any of that. And so what am I, you know, I'm not a magician. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? And, and three months ago, when you just did the merit increase, it, you rated them as good. Yes, right. that's exactly right. Right. Yeah. yeah. You do like to see some consistency between um, what you say and what you do. It yeah. certainly helps. Yeah. It helps me. If, if there's a takeaway from this for HR folks is make sure you get your stuff in writing. And, you know, if, it's, if you have a poor performer, don't ignore it until the, the point where you have to fire them because <laughs> you're just yeah, going to eat that. Yeah, we try to be – I mean, I'm, in, I'm, I'm a partner in a law firm. I'm in management too. And we don't – Nobody wants to be the bad guy. Everybody, you don't, you just, you don't want to be the bad guy. You don't want to be mean to people. You don't want to be nasty to people, but you also have a job to do. And part of that job, if you want to be able to hold, uh, you know, poor performers accountable, you gotta, they gotta know what their failings are so that you can at some point in the future hold them accountable. Yeah. And there's just so many managers and well, supervisors, managers, and up just don't understand that until they have to eat a termination. Yeah, yeah, or until they got to sit, a, you know, sit across an arbitration table or sit across from a plaintiff's lawyer in a deposition and have to explain why this employee that you know you've said was the worst employee you ever had. There's not a single piece of paper that supports that. It's a, it's not the most comfortable position to be in for the supervisor or manager, you know, or for me as the person that's got to sit there and defend them. Yeah, I, I sometimes tell the story. Um, one of the best supervisors that I was across the table from or across the desk, so to speak, because we weren't that high up in the in the chain, um, the employees hated him. But from a union rep standpoint, he was probably the easiest to work with because he did everything by the book. And so, and I, you know, I was probably in my early 20s one time and he comes up to me while I'm on a forklift and he said, gives me a list of names and and the discipline that he had meted out. And he said, I gave this guy a verbal, this one a written, this one final warning, this one, you know, verbal, just like 
eight or five, you know, eight or 10 people on there. And I, th- I was like, Jim, what'd they do? And he goes, they weren't wearing their earplugs. And it had been, you know, so I went around on the forklift, all the different stations. I was like, were you wearing your earplugs? No, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> so, yeah. And that's, I mean, there are definitely two different philosophies. Um, you know, one is if the employer has done everything correctly, like you say, and, and is everything documented and the, and the punishment justifies uh, the violation, the punishment meets the term violation. Some, a lot of unions are going to say, you know, what are we supposed to do for you? Uh, but there's also some out there that will grieve and arbitrate everything because they think that's their role. And that's, that's what make that's, those are, are is what makes it very difficult for employers because they, they're in a battle with everything. Yeah, I mean, I did that with certain supervisors, but is you know the ones that actually played by the book, uh, you have no problem with, you know. And I'm going again back thirty plus years right. ago. The um, yeah. So the the other thing I've noticed with um, a lot of unionized companies is they always negotiate um, into their contracts the management rights clause that in, the company's got the right to discipline up to and including termination for just cause but they don't explain what just cause is to the supervisors. They don't do a class, which is literally, you know, it's a 15 minute class on what is just cause. It's the, you know, the Doggerty seven principles of just cause. And then they wind up eating the termination because they didn't follow the just cause. As you know, that's a problem on the unionized employer side. Yeah. A little bit of, you know, a little bit of training goes a long way that, uh, you know, my difficulty is always, convincing businesses, you know, particularly in my world where most of my clients, all of my clients are small to mid-sized businesses, um, you know, convincing them to make the, the capital outlay upfront in a little bit of training. Um, and too often they don't understand the benefit of that on any point um, until, you know, until they understand that it's going to cost them, you know, 10, 20, 50 times that on the back end to pay me to come in and fix the mess that shouldn't have been created in the first place if they would have just had me or someone like me come in and do, you know, 15 minutes, 60 minutes worth of training with, with their with their supervisors and managers. Right. Yeah, it is, it's that ounce of prevention, so to speak, union and non-union. Yeah, for sure. The, um, the other thing you noted is the prioritization of longevity over merit. And this is, this is something else that I think um, a lot of folks don't understand. And I'm not sure, I guess one of the things that I'm trying to wrap my head around these days is, you know, unions typically in the old days used to go by strictly seniority. They still do in a lot of sense, but there's such a, like companies don't employ people anymore for 20, 30 years, not by and large. People are in and out. I think the average is about two and a half years in a company before they move on. That sounds about right. And, you know, so when you look at, um, you know, this Gen Z workforce, and I don't know that they necessarily understand the whole concept of equal outcome versus equal opportunity. And yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think they, well, they view, I mean, they, they view the outcome very, which is why I, I, I to some regard, while we, t- we can talk about the activist nature of, of Gen Z, the fact that they're shifting jobs every six months because they're chasing that brass ring, whatever that is, better, more flexibility, more money, better benefits. Uh, I'm not sure they have enough forethought to really think about the benefits piece of it, but certainly the money, the flexibility, whatever they're chasing, 
um, which is a very me issue. But then by the same token, they also have this much more kind of kind of holistic, socialistic view of what the workplace is supposed to be. So it's it, it, it's an interesting it, it it's an interesting juxtaposition. But they definitely don't understand that they're the seniority that many collective bargaining agreements still have you know still have baked into them. Uh, definitely is going to definitely runs counter to the um, uh, the individual that wants to job hop every you know six twelve eighteen months. Yeah, the the other thing I've I've had numerous conversations about with the um, the Gen Z, I guess it's, it'd be Gen Z or millennials, but from from attorneys who are negotiating contracts with this age group, they're coming into the bargaining table and asking for things that are not mandatory subjects of bargaining. And, you know, getting into permissive things. And I think we saw this with um, the Google walkout a couple of years ago where the, the employees, not unionized, but they're demanding that Google fire or get rid of their client, which I think was the DOD, might have been CIA or something like that. Um, but they're saying, you know, they're coming in saying, oh, we want social justice time off to go do protests, you know, pay time off to go do protesting for social activism and all this weird stuff. And that's that's going to be fascinating when they do get to the bargaining table and start asking for things. Yeah, which is a failure of education on the union's part in terms of what the union can do for them, because they they have no right to insist on something that's not a mandatory issue, bargaining. And so, if the employees think they're going to be able to to use the leverage of a union to uh, do anything regard in regards to these you know softer permissive subjects, it's going to be you're right. It's going to be very interesting to watch. Yeah. Well, and then the, um, so I was watching Chris Smalls, who's the president of the Amazon labor union out right. in Staten Island, did a CNN interview. Um, and this kind of, it, it just kind of struck me as a weird dichotomy as part of his demands or what the union wanted is job security. And that was his first and foremost, because there's so much turnover in Staten Island, 150%, he said. And which unions don't necessarily provide job security to begin with, other than if a company's not doing just cause. Um, And then he also said that he wanted their shares of stock back, which, you know, Amazon, and I recalled this when he said this on CNN, but Amazon, when they raised the minimum wage, they basically um, did away with the free stocks for employees. And I just found that fascinating that they wanted stocks back in this company that they hate, and you know, and money talks, man. That, well, you can that, hate it. You can hate it, but still get rich off it. It was a very capitalist type of statement for someone who's being backed by the DSA and the Communist Party USA. <laughs> so it's just fascinating. So you also did a post. Uh, I think it was just within the last week because we linked on it uh, at LaborUnionNews.com, and it was on salting. You yeah, want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean, it's something that. Um, I think it's been used both in the Amazon and Starbucks campaigns. Right. Um, yeah, salting for those who are um, unfamiliar with the term. Uh, assault, uh, it, not assault like the fight, but a salt, S-A-L-T, is um, somebody who applies for a job with a non-union employer for the express purpose of organizing the employer's workforce. So they, they want to get hired so they can organize from the inside. Uh, they might also try to do things like go to the employer into committing unfair labor practices, um, 
to maybe influence the campaign or influence bargaining or to maybe inflict some economic harm on the employer through NLRB remedies or by having to just pay to defend the unfair labor practice charge itself. Um, and it's you know, typically in the law, we think of things that are on their face deceitful as being uh, disfavored or unlawful. And this is one of the few examples um, where it's not. Uh, salting is 100% legal. A union can absolutely um, send uh, someone in uh, to get hired by a company for the express purpose of organizing employees from the inside of that company. As long as there's an actual job the individual is applying for, uh, the individual is qualified to hold the job they're applying for, um, and they have a genuine interest in working for the employer, uh, it's uh, it's an unfair labor practice for the company to refuse to hire the individual because of some you know, anti-labor or anti-union um, animus. Yeah, you you cited a case called Aerotech, I believe, in in your post. And if we can, can let's bifurcate the topic assaults because that was an IBEW case, right? Correct. And so the I believe the case, um, and I've got to go back to your post on it, but I believe the case involving the IBW is where they went to an employer uh, is actually a staffing firm. Yeah, it was and, a staffing agency. It was four individuals uh, went to the staffing agency and they actually told Aerotech, the staffing agency, um, please place us at you know with your clients because we want to we want to organize them. And Aerotech said no. Aerotech said no. We're not going to do that. Um, they filed in for labor practice charges, and then the ALJ, the the full board, and then the uh, federal Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals all concluded that Aerotech's failure to hire these individuals um, violated their you know, vi- violated their rights under uh, eighty one and eighty three. Right. So the the um, I guess the bifurcation part of this is. Construction unions for years have done what they did at Aerotech and said, you know, they basically are open about, and you use the term expressly, they're open about salting the employer. So in the, like we've had this happen with um, companies in in Pennsylvania where there used to be organizers that would literally walk up in either their IBW or operating engineers jackets and say, I'm here to unionize and you're hiring, I want to unionize you. You know, that's how bold it is. And then when they get denied employment, then they go down and file charges. Mm-hmm. That's that's that express part of it. The other type is uh, where it's more underground, which I think has happened at Amazon as well as um, Starbucks as well. Starbucks. Correct. Yeah, they're getting Correct. hired in there. You know, nothing on their resume says they're with the union or DSA or CPUSA, but they're there literally to unionize from within. Right. And so my so the question I have in, in the Amazon or the Starbucks case is, I mean, the standard is the the employee, the, the, the applicant, the salt, has to have a quote genuine genuine interest, unquote, in working for the employer. So the question I always have in these cases is, I mean, what's the line between genuine interest in working? Yeah, you're gonna show up, you're gonna work, you're gonna, you know, do your orientation, you're gonna you know, get trained on how to run the, you know, how to run the the bean grinder and the espresso machine and, you know, make your lattes and whatever, and you're going to get a paycheck for that. But is that, but are, are you genuinely interested in working or are you genuinely interested in helping organize their, your, your new coworkers? 
And where's the line between what is a, in my view, a very deceitful decision to apply to work for a company, not because you want to be a barista at Starbucks, but really because you want to organize or help organize their employees. I mean, where where's that, you know, where is the line between genuine interest and disingenuous, disingenuous interest? I think um under a more rational NLRB, there may be a distinction there, but I don't believe not not just, with today's correct. <laughs> not with today's NLRB. Yeah, it's um we're in a brave new world, so to speak. To yeah, quote, it's to quote it Aldous is, Huxley. It, it's the um we lived it in six years ago and going back, you know, six, twelve years ago with the Obama board. Um, but the focus there, while we saw the, you know, the the, the sped up election rules and, and, and some more union friendly things, the focus there was really much more on um, how the board can benefit non-union workplaces as much or even more than, than union workplaces with the, the focus on protected concerted activity and, you know, non-union employees going and challenging terminations and other workplace decisions. Now, what we're seeing, I think, is a much more activist, much more aggressive board that is pushing really, really hard to help employees collectively bargain. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I had a gentleman by the name of Michael Latito from Littler on a few weeks ago, and he he summed it up very well. Jennifer Abruzzo, who's the GC at the NLRB, was assistant GC out of uh, under the Obama board under Richard Griffin. And I had totally forgotten about that. So when they entered office, so to speak, they hit the ground running. Like they had it all mapped out, planned out and ready to go. So I think she got in in June or July of last year. And then of course they came out in August with the, her, the GC memorandum, you know, the submissions for advice memorandum. And it just laid out a complete litany of, of changes under the law. And now we're starting to see it. And we're starting to see them, uh, or at least see, uh, you know, movement in that direction with some of the positions the board has taken and briefs that have been filed. And I think very, very soon we're going to see some pretty, I would say, the most dramatic policy changes we've seen at the board, certainly in my 25 years of practice. Yeah, I, I agree. So you had a chance to read the CMEX brief, right? I did. All 93 pages of it. Exciting. Yeah. So I just, I, I hit... Uh, about three of the things that I thought were critical in there. Where do you see this going? Do you see them doing everything that's in the brief or like it's going from the GC urging the board to adopt all these things? Do you think they'll do it, you know, as it's written? It's a really, really good question. I think in terms of, you know, in terms of kind of likely what's likely to happen, um, I would bet that we're going to see the, the card check recognition, I think that's coming, and I think it's coming really soon. Um, I think that has been a, I mean, it's been a, a legislative priority going back to the with the Employee Free Choice Act, which we saw, I don't know, a dozen years or so ago that never really went anywhere in Congress. Um, and I think we're going to see the NLRB pick up that ball. Um, and I think, uh, I think they're going to pick up that fumble and run it into the end zone, I think. And I think we're going to see um, card check recognition uh, I think coming out of the CMEX decision, I think, I think for sure. I think the more interesting, you know, decisions are 
um, the more interesting issues are the ones talking about what, what I what I call kind of the workplace, uh, you know, the workplace Mirandizing surrounding captive audience speeches. I think we'll probably likely see captive audience speeches go as well. And I'm not one of the things I think has been the most interesting to watch with the Starbucks with the Starbucks organizing is how the organizers have, I think, very strategically used some of the some of Starbucks um, captive audience strategies against them um, and kind of and how you see some of these employees kind of holding Starbucks to account for, you know, locking employees in stores and giving them the, you know, giving them the, the uh, uh, anti-union 101 playbook. And so I wonder if from a from a strategy standpoint, to the extent that employees are, you know, going on TikTok and posting about what, you know, how they feel coerced about what they're being told in these captive audience meetings and they feel their jobs are being threatened and whatnot. I wonder if the board might not be doing employers a favor by limiting, you know, how employers can use captive audience speeches going forward because unions have certainly learned how to use them against employers and organizing campaigns. I think the way you read the board's position in the CMEX brief, um, if it's adopted as argued, it's going to be impossible for employers to communicate just about anything to employees in terms of the employer's what they legally can say during the organizing campaign, or the facts and opinions that they can express, um, because the, the 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 board or the, the the office of general counsel is essentially arguing that an employer, a supervisor, manager is going to essentially have to Mirandize an employee for um, giving them information, right? Before the supervisor approaches the employee on the shop floor or holds that meeting with employees. Um, the, the now or soon to be voluntary meeting that employees are, are choose to attend. You got to read them these, these litany of warnings about, you know, this is voluntary and you can leave at any time and you understand your job's not being threatened and, and it's going to make it very, very difficult for employers to get their, to get their message out. And when you dovetail that off the card check recognition, um, the, the burden is really going to fall on employers to be able to, if they want to have any hope of having, of having any meaningful, meaningful conversations with their employees at all about the, the cons of unionization and why employees shouldn't sign uh, an authorization card. Managers and supervisors are going to have to educate themselves very, very, very quickly on what the potential warning signs of a union, the union organizing campaign look like, and get very, very proactive about um, the employer getting its messaging out there long before those cards show up. Because once the cards show up, and while there are ways, there will still be ways to get an, an election of those very difficult moving forward if that goes, if the if the card check recognition goes through. Once those cards come in, I think in a lot of cases the employer is going to be sunk and it's going to have to sit down and bargain to. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, as one who's done, I'm just throwing this out as round number, thousands of meetings with employees, um, and it's 
25 years worth. I don't necessarily have a big problem with the voluntary aspects of the meetings themselves. It's I think what's going to be more difficult is the second component of that, which is the supervisors having conversations on the floor. Correct. And I, yeah, I think if you were to say you can't bring no, you can't call an all-shot meeting where you bring everybody into the, you know, into the break room or a conference room and kind of give them the 60-minute, here's why you shouldn't join a union. That's one thing. The supervisors walking around the floor and having conversations with their employees, that that is that's a whole other story. Yeah, and that, they're, I'm sure there's going to be a way to do it. It's just a matter of, like, figuring out once they do issue a decision on CMEX how to do it. So. Yeah, and in, ter- and in terms of le- levels of coercion, I think we could look at it even from our side of the table and and objectively look at a a you know a, a traditional captive audience meeting. The everybody's in a room with the door closed, and the president of the company or the general manager or whomever, um, you know, giving a lecture on the the downsides of unionization. Um, there is certainly a uh, there is certainly a coercive aspect to that. And even from my side of the table, I can, I can see that, that it is qualitatively different than a supervisor walking the shop floor and saying, Hey Joe, can I talk to you for a second? Pulling him or her, you know, pulling him aside, you know, and having a, you know, five or 10 minute conversation about the, about the, uh, the, the negatives of, signing the signing the authorization card or voting voting for the union yeah well it's um i mean i think there's a a complete misunderstanding and i'm only speaking for myself on this of what constitutes a quote captive audience meeting because i when i'm meeting with employees i don't i don't tell them how to vote i don't suggest that they should vote this way or that way literally it's a class so i teach them about the National Labor Relations Act. We, our literal first handout is um, the basic guide to the National Labor Relations Act. You know, we hand out copies of the Constitution. It's it's educational. And we have slides. Um, in fact, the first slide up there is, you know, we're not here to predict the future. Can't tell you what's going to happen. All that sort of stuff. So adding a component of voluntary meeting, you know, here's what we're going to talk about. You're free to leave at any time. I'm cool with that. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I have no, I have no problem with that. I think, I think the devil will be in the details in terms of how the, you know, how the board defines what is voluntary. And I don't have, I don't have a whole lot of faith that this board is going to draw a very fair line. So no, well, and you know, the other side of that too, which, which is where I have for years had a big problem with, and I've said to the pro labor side, you know, if you guys were just honest in organizing campaigns and weren't making promises or weren't lying to employees, you know, put us out of business. You know, it's, it's literally, you know, they can go in six months, you know, up to a year before they're, they're filing a petition and just work underground. In fact, a lot of the unions, mine own included, you know, say, keep it underground until you get 70% of the cards signed. Um, and they make promises They're you know, they'll either imply them or they'll make actual promises. Um, they'll tell them, you know, signing a card is just to get information in the mail or to see if you're interested, you know, that sort of stuff, which I mean, we had one case where, uh, just last year is a bunch of, um, non-English speaking employees were told that they would be meeting with company executives and, you know, to sign up to go to the meeting and it was union cards. So 
Yeah. Yes. All, all the things that all the things that employers can't do, uh, right. the unions get a free pass to do, which is right. yeah, I mean, fundamentally unfair, but that's the system. Yeah. It's uh it's gonna be fascinating when this come down to, comes down. Yeah. And and the the, the other piece of the, the CMEX decision, CMEX brief that I found to be maybe the most offensive and just completely disingenuous is the reliance on decertification as a remedy for the employees if they sign the cards oh, and then right. decide later decide later they don't they don't want a union because I've done decertification elections they're really hard to manage because we literally have to have our hands like yeah. we, we can't even suggest that we, we can't even suggest to employees that they decertify if they're if they're uh, unhappy with their union the window when employees can do it is super super narrow because of the contract bar rule and yeah. it's something that employees they just they're not gonna they're not they're not gonna th- they're not gonna come up with the idea on their own to decertify and we can't give it to them as the employer so it's just something that in practice hardly ever comes up and so I just found that to be well we have this decertification procedure you know at the board and if the employees are unhappy they can just they can just decertify and get out of their union and well, which hardly ever happens. So yeah, that was it. Was I saw that? Is that it was like one sentence in the uh, I don't know somewhere halfway through it? But it was like, oh well, if, you know, a bargaining order. The the employees can quickly just you know decertify. Is essentially what they're saying. It's like, no, that doesn't that doesn't happen that way. So the other thing that I found fascinating about that is this whole um, on the briefing the discussion about Tricast, which was this 1985 case about where it's. Um, they want to make it unlawful for the employer to tell employees that if they're unionized, the direct relationship would go away, which it in fact does. Yeah, it, it, that that's the whole that's the whole point of the union is they right. become they become the conduit for the communication, except for some very narrow you know some very narrow exceptions. And so yeah, the, the direct communication between management and the employees um, in reality uh, does go away, and so. Yeah. You're, you're you're creating a rule that doesn't reflect the reality of a collectively bargained workplace. Yeah, it's I I when I was a union rep again going back 35 years ago on that one, but um, I had a supervisor that met directly with an employee, and you know talking she'd use all of her vacation or whatever, and I told him, look, if I ever catch you doing that again, I'm going to file an unfair labor practice, you know, because that's direct dealing, right? And I have the right to be there. So, and, and the whole part of that with regard to, you know, what the board's trying to do is just that too is disingenuous. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the statute says the union becomes the, it becomes the exclusive representative exclusive. I mean, right. period. that's, they are, they're it. And you, there is, there is, there really is no, unless you want to buy yourself an unfair labor practice charge, there really isn't an end run around that use that you as an employer can make. Right. Yeah. It's uh, well, could go off on the whole philosophy on that side, but it doesn't really matter if truth is there or not. They're <laughs> they're going to do what they want to do. What? Let me ask you from a timing standpoint: When do you see the board ruling on CMEX? I was trying to figure that out the other day. It's a good question. I mean, I I would I would assume at some point this at some point this year I would assume we'll get a decision. Yeah, but in term, you yeah, think it'd I'd, take that long? Uh. Probably not. I, you know, it's 
what is it? I lose track of months now. COVID is COVID has screwed up like my complete internal calendar, but it's now it's mid-April. Yeah. So I mean, certainly by the fall, maybe sooner, I think we'll have a decision from the board. It makes sense. Yeah. So by by the end of the year. For for sure. Yeah. For sure. And then, you know, and then the question becomes, well, not now, but um the question then becomes when we get to 2024, if the White House flips, does all this become moot if then we end up with Republican Congress, Republican White House, and then all this is undone by legislation. That's why this, all this board stuff is so, it's always so interesting to watch because A, the board does kind of twist in the political wind depending on who's appointing the members of the board, number one. But then if we end up with a Republican majority in both houses of Congress and in the White House in 2024, this all, we might all be living with this for a couple of years before Congress comes in and, and undoes it all with legislation. You well, yeah. So Congress, um, I think, has a potential flipping. I'm not sure about the White House, but you may have more confidence than I do. So I don't know. Um, it's 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 a. I think the election, uh, the, the the midterm election. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how that plays out, um, and then we'll see what happens over the next two years. I think a lot of it. I, I don't want to get. I don't want to go down too deep of a political uh, rabbit hole, but I think a lot of it depends on. Uh, kind of what Trump does between now and 2024. So, oh, you think he's coming back? No, I don't. I don't. Oh, I don't. Okay. I don't think. I don't think he's coming back. But I think that 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 wing of the party, that wing of the republic, the, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, that it might not be Trump, but it might be someone not as polarizing, um, but at least polarized in that direction, like a Ron DeSantis. Um, the Republican Party is just going to be it's going to be fascinating to watch philosophically how that how the party defines itself moving forward, because it almost feels like you're dealing with two separate parties at this point. Yeah. And I think and, and, I, and, and I think the Democrats have the same problem with the kind of Bernie Sanders AOC wing of the Democratic Party versus the more. It just feels that the parties internally are more are more divided and more polarized than, than I can ever than, than I can ever recall. Well, they they have both shifted in their respective direct directions more right or left, and the the people in the middle, I, I think the Republicans they consider them rhinos, and then I don't know what they call them, like the Joe Mansions of the world or Kirsten Cinema, but yeah, you know, they seem to be more moderate. But those people in that middle band seem to be getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, they're, 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 getting, they're getting squeezed out, which makes it difficult to get anything done, number one. And then number two, I think what, uh, I speak for all of America now, but I think what America wants is just for things to get done. And the way for things to get done is to compromise and to meet in the middle. But as that middle gets squeezed, it becomes just much harder to get you know, to get things done and, and, and to get anything done in DC from either side. So. Yeah, I think, um, and this kind of brings us back to the whole thing with Gen Z and the massive organizing. Um, what I think a lot of it, both in politics, uh, as well as unions are, are going to be dependent on is what happens in the economy. And we've got, was 11%, 8.5% CPI. And then PPI was 11% for producers and if we start tanking in the economy and jobs become more scarce, we start seeing a lot of pink slips like we did back in 08, it may put a damper on the organizing. 
And that's a really that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, right now the the leverage is with the unions and the workforce, so to speak, because you know what is it, three point five percent unemployment? Right. Everybody everybody who wants to work is working, and there's not right. enough people to fill the jobs that are vacant. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it, and then that gets into immigration issues and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it's I don't know. And I guess what I'm trying to put my hands around is whether or not or wrap my head around is whether or not this is a fleeting moment in history or it's got some sustainability. I think the unions are hoping for sustainability, but it feels, (laughs) it feels to me. So we were, we were what a few years ago, pre COVID we were in the private sector. What about 6% collectively bargained? I think in the private sector. Yeah. A little bit higher, Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Six, 6.2, whatever. Um, I'd like to see what the numbers are kind of at the end of this year, in terms of where we are and how much of a bump unions have gotten just overall in the workforce. I think the pendulum will swing back more to the middle. I'm not sure I'm not sure it's ever going to go back to what, fully to where it was pre-pandemic in terms of what the workplace looks like on a lot of reasons, but I think or on a lot of issues, but I think with with unions as well, I think I think Gen Z has found um, I think Gen Z is largely kind of powering this issue. And I think they are, I don't think you're going to see that activism wane enough for the union genie to go back in the bottle the way, the way it has been historically for the last, whatever, 30 or 40 years. So that, so that kind of dovetails to what should employers be doing? And I'm, I'm leaning towards the, the pendulum, if you will, from, card signing union organizing activity actually needs to go back to almost new hire orientation, given all the stuff that's coming down through the board. No, I think that's, I I think that's right. I have, um, I have for years and I've written about this numerous times. I call it the team approach to union avoidance team T E A M. So the T for train your supervisors, E for educate your employees, a for affirm the open door and then M for modernize your policies, team approach. Mm-hmm. So I think to your point, I think um, you're talking about kind of the E, the educating the employees. And I think that needs to be done. It, that that needs to start, you need to start that process the minute employees get in the door, because uh, you're not, you may not know when they're, you know, at the bar after work with a couple of their coworkers and the union organizer. You may, because the supervisor, you, you, you may have a supervisor who has a good relation on the floor and may have, you know, may have, you know, the right trained ear. And that goes to the kind of the training of supervisors to what to look for and some of the warning signs, but you may not know. Um, and so the earlier in the employment process, you can start getting your messaging out to employees about the importance of um uh, why you think or why you want to remain or why you think they should want to remain union free, I, you know, I think the better. And I've heard so often from companies that I talk to about, you know, doing some this real kind of basic level union avoidance training for supervisors and managers so they can start talking to employees about these issues. You know, we don't even want to mention the word union because we don't want to give anybody any ideas that these things even exist. And the reality is like they, they, your employees know they exist. 
Um, yeah. and anybody with and, a cell phone these days. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, you, you can't avoid it these days. Every, every, you know, how many news stories are there about what's going on at Starbucks? Right. I mean, you, you, right. you can't, you can't avoid it these days. Your employees know these issues are out there. Um, and if you're afraid of mentioning the word union, because you're afraid you're going to push your employees in that direction, just by bringing up the word, um, you're taking a colossal risk that, that a union doesn't already have your ears. Well, it's, yeah, it's the analogy of, you know, do you want somebody else talking to your kids about sex and drugs, or do you want to have that conversation yourself? Love that analogy. Yeah. The other thing I've noticed a lot of companies don't do, and that would be probably the type of employer that wouldn't want to bring up the U word is they don't promote their own benefits or their own positive employee relations enough. And, you know, whether it's sitting down with employees and explaining the 401k, sitting down with employees, everybody in HR these days are seem to be outsourcing it to, you know, the benefits department or, or the benefits provider, whereas they don't really pump it up as being a good thing and how much we spend on benefits as opposed to what your copay is. Right. Or, or, do, or don't even, or, or don't even have, I mean, they might have a, they might have a PEO that's managing all the stuff for them, or they might have, oh, yeah. uh, or they might have fractional HR or they might, you know, have an HR consultant come in one day a week to kind of manage the HR function on site. And then they're kind of on call the rest of the week, but are only really there one day a week. And from an employer's perspective, like you're, your people are your most important asset. You don't have the whatever whatever your widget is, whatever thing, good or service right. you produce, that good or service does not get produced without your employees. So if you're not prioritizing your employees um, in everything you do, from a pay perspective, from a benefits perspective, from a um, communication perspective, from a respect perspective, from a safety perspective, if, if your employees don't perceive that they are valued as your number one most important asset. You are not taking care of your number one most important asset, playing right into the hands of the labor union organizers who are going to come and tell your employees that you are not you are not prioritizing them the way they should be prioritized. Right. Yeah. It's it's a big failing with a lot of companies. At, at years ago, we had a company that was massive, um, you know, around the world. Here in the United States, they had I don't know three or four hundred facilities, if not more, and they had unions, and, but they treated their non-union employees as salaried workers. So they had all the salaried benefits and the bargaining agents for the, for the employer were basically like, we treat all of our employees as we're treated in terms of wages, and not necessarily wages, but benefits, et cetera, um, until such time as they decide to negotiate for those. And then they wind up in contracts, which doesn't have all the stuff they did have. And they and the comment was, we can't figure out why we're getting all these campaigns. And I had the conversation with their one of their VPs of HR, and because I had done a couple campaigns, one of which was a decertification campaign where the employees had chose to unionize, wound up 18 months into bargaining, not having a contract, and were looking at the the proposed final deal, which contained less than they had going in or they could go out on strike. And that's when they realized, oh, let's try to decertify this thing, right? So in having that conversation, it's like your employees, when they are looking at a union, don't know what they've already got, what they're putting out on the bargaining table to lose. And that that beget a whole conversation about internal marketing. They needed to market themselves and what they're providing to their employees. And just, there's not enough companies that do that. Yeah, you know, it's it, right. You know, you're, you you might be giving up your 401k for a union pension plan. 
is, is exactly. that is, is an underfunded one. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. You might be giving up your, uh, we offer great health benefits and now you're going to have to go on the Teamsters benefit plan. And is that, right. you know, is that, is that what you want? Is that what's in your best interest? And yeah, they, they might bring you, maybe the maybe they'll bring you a dollar or two more an hour, maybe. Um, but is it worth it in trade for your, you know, for your 401k in exchange for, for, for your underfunded pension? Um, you know, and uh, these that you'll, benefits. That you'll never see because there's a five-year vest and the average turnover is three years, right? So. <laughs> right, exactly. It's exactly right. Yeah. So it's, it is, you know, it, it, it's, I, I, I love the, uh, I love the philosophy of internal marketing and it's definitely something that uh, too many employers don't do nearly enough of. Yeah. It's just, it's tooting your own horn and not enough companies do that. Yeah. I'm, I'm on board with you hundred percent. So Mr. Hyman, we've been on for about an hour. Um, and I assume, although I'm going to put the links to your blog and um, I think I'm going to link to your, your profile on LinkedIn as well. Cause you are, you have a massive audience and you are the master of workplace schadenfreude. Right. I am. That's the only German. That's not the only German word I speak. Um, uh, Schadenfreude for the uh, those that speak less German than I do yeah. is joy, it, taking joy in the uh, in the pain or displeasure of others. And, um, that kind of I, I've always thought that kind of defines to a T what I do as a as a labor and employment lawyer for uh, you know for management. I always say that I you know I uh, pay my mortgage and. Uh, feed my kids and clothe my kids um, uh, purely based off of employees that screw up at their jobs. So uh, the master of workplace shine for that's, uh, that's what I do. But yeah, I would love if you linked to the blog, linked to uh, my LinkedIn profile as well. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on to labor relations radio and um, it's finally a pleasure to meet you after so many years. So I know. Hopefully, one day in person, and not just uh, through the. I think we've all gotten accustomed to Zoom at this point. But, yeah, um, I do get to Ohio once, once or twice a year usually. So. Let me know. All right, sounds good. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right, bye bye. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Jonathan Hyman, Master of Workplace Scheidenfreude. I'm just going to keep screwing that up. In any case, uh, if you're on LinkedIn, you need to subscribe and follow him and subscribe to his uh, blog, the Ohio Employer Law Blog. It is a good read, um, and I appreciated him coming on. It's the first time we had met, although we had connected years ago on, on LinkedIn. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List, and do me a favor. Share this episode and other episodes with your colleagues. We're all about giving out information and uh, having people listen. So if you want to reach out to us, reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or uh, leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Have a great day. been listening to Labor Relations Radio.